Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, part four of Professor Michael O'Rourke's five-part series, The Nows and Thens of Queer Theory. This online and in-residence seminar was organised by the Global Centre for Advanced Studies in association with UCD Centre for Gender, Culture and Identities and UCD Humanities Institute. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this podcast, part four, Butler Now, Drones of War. Okay, hi everyone and hello everybody online. Uh, this is the fourth of the lectures in the nows and thens of Queer Theory series. And today we're going to talk about Judith Butler again. Um, on Monday we talked about Butler's early work, primarily on radical democracy. Um, today I'm going to talk mostly about her recent uh, thinking, um, which many of you will be familiar with if you were at our lecture here in Dublin last week. Um, the work she's doing around rethinking vulnerability and resistance. And this sort of dual dimension that she's tracing between uh, performance, uh, well, a dual dimension to performativity uh, that we both, norms act on us and we also uh, act, even though originally constituted by those acts. So it's, it's a relationship between performance uh, and performativity. Um, and it's really picking up on a debate which she was having with, with uh, Eve Sedgwick uh, quite some time ago about performativity. And they both borrowed their notion of performativity from, from Derrida and Derrida's uh, understandings of citationality, iterability, resignification and so on. Um, and Sedgwick says that speech acts, and we talked about this yesterday in the Veer Theory lecture, speech acts deviate from their aims and this is what produces uh, or results in uh, consequences which are unanticipated. <clears throat> so there's this opening uh, onto the unanticipatable in uh, the speech act. Uh, now that can sometimes be felicitous uh, or it some, can sometimes be infelicitous. Uh, so when we're talking about drones, there can be uh, misfires uh, which cause collateral damage, for example, which is clearly uh, an infelicitous kind of firing. Um, obviously, not, that's not a linguistic example. Um, but I am talking about uh, performativity in ways which don't necessarily uh, have to be anchored in the linguistic. Um, so there's this sense in Sedgwick, um, or this underscoring in her understanding of performativity, of precisely what I was saying yesterday, of how a speech act uh, can veer uh, away from what its apparent aims are. Uh, and this is one way in which um, deviation from uh, norms uh, can be understood as queer. Um, but this is queer not in the sense of an identity. Okay, This is in the sense I was talking about yesterday as a movement, uh, which is a movement of, of thought and language uh, for Sedgwick, but I would add it's also a movement of bodies and objects. And <clears throat> this movement of thought, language, bodies and objects would, would work in a way which would be contrary uh, to accepted 
are legitimised or hegemonic forms of uh, authority. Um, so this veering movement uh, would be what precisely what opens up a space uh, that wouldn't be openly recognised or always openly recognised. Okay, so when we're talking about performativity and, and the body in Butler, it's important to note that the body is uh, doesn't sediment into an identity or an entity. Okay, when Butler talks about a body, it's always a body which is in relation, and that would be in relation to other bodies. Uh, but it's also, as she's been emphasising more and more in the last few years, uh, this this relationality is indissociable from the infrastructural supports or environmental conditions uh, upon which we depend uh, for our uh, life sustenance, our very livability depends on um, a particular set of um, supports which we can often be dispossessed of. Okay? And one of the philosophical, um, what would I call it, uh, one of the ways of philosophically understanding um, this dispossession or the way in which uh, our bodies and our uh, supports for living uh, can be in, in some sense deprived or those environmental conditions that we depend on are taken away from us. Uh, one way of, t of talking about that philosophically is to think about it in terms of what's called the necropolitical. Okay? We're, we're, we're more used to thinking about things in, in terms of biopower, bios meaning life. Uh, but the necropolitical means that it's, it's somewhere in between life and death. So it's, it's probably actually better to hyphenate it so say necro-political, because it's, the hyphen's important because you're, you're somewhere in the sort of threshold or zone of indiscernibility between life and death. Uh, so there's, there's that sort of always already living dead quality that uh, queer theory and queer activism would be very familiar with from uh, the height of AIDS in the, in the early, early 90s. Um, so necropolitics, or the necropolitical, um, in the domain of drone theory, um, Grégoire Chamayou, who's, uh, whose book Drone Theory I've been reading, uh, it's a wonderful book, uh, it's just come out in English uh, about a month ago, um, it's very lucid, uh, for a French philosopher, he's very lucid um, commentator on the, on the, on the sort of military um, philosophical uh, psychological um, dimensions of drones uh, and he talks about necroethics so this this would be the term that he would use but necropolitics or necroethics whichever you want to call it we would refer to the way in which certain lives are considered lives um, and by by being considered lives I mean that they're considered a life worth living a life worth grieving a life worth mourning uh, while others would be consigned to um, the, the realm of the unlivable, uh, the ungravable, the unmournable. Um, and Butler would give the example of 9-11, where all of the Americans who died at the uh, Ground Zero, the Twin Towers, uh, they all had obituaries, they were all named, they were all given a face, they were all given a legible identity, 
whereas all those who died in Afghanistan, for example, are unmourned. They're not given an obituary. They're not named. Uh, they're not considered worth a life. Uh, another example would be Guantanamo Bay, the, those prisoners who are, who are indefinitely detained at Guantanamo Bay. Now, they have names because they're persons of interest. They are the enemy. They are suspects. All of those I place in inverted commas. Um, but they, they're not considered to have uh, a life worth living. Therefore, they can be indefinitely detained, uh, unlawfully detained, uh, indeed. Uh, or the Charlie Hebdo, more recently. Uh, Je suis Charlie is a good example. It's like, you know, certain lives, certain atrocities are worth memorialising in this way. Like, you know, uh, if someone was shot in a school yesterday, Je suis that person. You know, what kinds of lives do we consider valuable? or uh, what counts as a life and what doesn't count as a life. So there's this whole calculus of social meaning and social viability. So it would render some people as socially living and others as socially dead. Uh, you know the way we have inscriptions on tombstones. I mean, uh, for these people, it would just be empty. You know? uh, they don't enter into the realm of uh, the lawful, the legitimate, the legible, um, the viable, so they're relegated, in a sense, to a condition of non-being, uh, of not having any being, uh, which would also mean that they're at the risk of death or um, at the risk of being put to death. Um, and that can be in various different ways. It can be neglect, deprivation of resources, uh, decimation of support, uh, whether that would be welfare or whatever. Uh, these populations would also be at higher risk of mortality, and that would be for the same reasons due to the sort of systematic obliteration of material, economic, environmental uh, supports and means of sustenance. Um, and it's always certain groups or certain populations who are differently exposed to injury, uh, differently exposed to violence, poverty, becoming indebted, uh, and then at the far end of the scale, death. Uh, and this is what Butler refers to as precarity. Because precarity is the term which uh, would describe this condition um, of always having the place of non-being. Um, so it may sound oxymoronic, but their proper place is to have no place, okay? Uh, and yet they must always be kept in place of having no place. And that's related to sort of social designation of vulnerability, uh, which is a condition which is fundamental to the operations of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism cannot function without this designation of certain people as vulnerable, uh, as valueless, um, so there's a whole list of modalities of valuelessness, of worthlessness. Um, I mean, social debt would be the umbrella term to use, but there's all sorts of abandonment, impoverishment, uh, racism, whether it's individual racism or state racism, uh, fascism, uh, homophobia, um, 
sexual assault, militarism, which we're going to talk about primarily today, malnutrition, um, and then a sort of governmentalization uh, or a neoliberalization of negligence and a withdrawing of any sort of support or empathy. Uh, so a sort, a sort of wide-scale aversiveness or aversion. So, so that's a bad veering. An aversion to uh, certain populations. So there's a link between sovereignty or those in power, uh, nation-states, um, and the exposure to death. Since it's always powerful subjects or sovereign states or nation-states who can expose those populations I've been mentioning uh, to this category of the living dead, um, to this category of the to-be-killed, or this category of the always-already always already dying. Um, so they have this necropolitical right, whether it's legal or not, or just or not, they have this necropolitical right to kill or to injure or to torture in the case of Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib and I'm sure there are lots of other places we simply don't know the name of. Um, and this determines whose lives can be wasted, disposed of uh, and whose cannot. Those who are disposable uh, from those who are not. Uh, it's often in very ordinary and quotidian ways. I mean, I'm talking about Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib because they're, they're spectacularised in a way. They're in the media. We know about them. Uh, drones are... You know, drone strikes, we're fascinated by them because we read about them all the time. I've only got interested in them in the last month or so. My, my, my twin actually has been helping me a lot with this because he's doing research on drones. But uh, they're in the media all the time. They're on TV, they're uh, fictionalised, there's drone memes on the internet. Um, it seems that just drones are everywhere, um, which may have something to do with drone, which is this sort of sound, which is sort of, it's beneath our threshold of hearing, but it's always there. Uh, which is, it isn't for these populations who are subjected to these things in the sky, because apparently it sounds like mosquitoes, and the sound is unbearable. They don't, they don't leave their homes. Uh, because they know, of course, that they're at risk always of being the person who's the target, but also because the sound uh, is too much. Um, but, I, but what I'm interested in is this sort, of, this sort of difference between the quotidian, the ordinary, and the spectacular, in the sense that, uh, you know, it's, it's also on this sort of calculus of meaningfulness or value. Uh, we don't care about things that are ordinary every day. We're waiting for something spectacular uh, to, to move us, to move us em empathically. Uh, and drones aren't anything new. I mean, aerial unmanned vehicles, uh, which is a technical name for a drone, uh, they were used in the First World War. So uh, we've had something like a drone through all the, all the combats um, in uh, recent history, 20, 20th and 21st century. Um, but this idea of necropolitics, uh, these operations, I think one can compare it a little bit to a drone. On the one hand, because drones are for surveillance and necropolitics or sovereign states' power over certain bodies is a sort of 
surveillance, but it's a matter of scale and size. Okay, so you've got these large nation states which can subject you know, individual bodies or individual populations to control. Uh, but zones are uh, drones. Sorry, drones are so small that they can get in. They can get in a window, for instance. They can insinuate themselves. Um, so it seems to me that there's something insistent or insistently similar about the way that drones operate and the way that necropolitics operates. Uh, in that, um, there's something about intelligibility there. When someone is seen and when someone is heard, they're rendered intelligible in some way, um, which of course, the military term is of course, you know, for reconnaissance is to seek intelligence, you know, intel, as they say on these TV shows. Um, but it's, <clears throat> it's not just surveillance, it's also subjugation, because it's, it's to render certain subjects, communities and populations unintelligible. Okay, you need to know about them, you need, they need to be intelligible to you in order for you to render them culturally and socially unintelligible and to eviscerate them, um, or to eviscerate their conditions, to tear them away from their conditions of possibility for living, um, and to tear away from them the, the very capacity of humanness. Okay, so they're not allowed uh, to enter into the category of the human itself, which of course is a massive, massive deprivation. Um, and one can see that in the, the way that, um, say, the prisoners in Guantanamo Bay are, are treated as if they were non-human. Um, so it's a massive project of de, de or inhumanisation. Uh, it's a violent, a, a violent logic um, of dispossession. Um, and it's temporal and spatial. Uh, we, because we talk about indefinite detention of prisoners, uh, but it's also spatial in that certain populations um, are sort of spatially mapped in this way. Uh, so when we talk about sub the subject being intelligible or unintelligible, we can also talk about the sort of intelligibility or unintelligibility of space. Um, and that's more or less how drones work, um, in the sense that drones um, they're, they're targeted at specific populations, but it's, it's no longer, say, the US fighting a war against a specific population. Borders don't matter anymore because the drone can cross borders and it can illegally um, and unjustly uh, go wherever it wants. So the whole world has become uh, a zone of free fire. Um, under drone warfare. Also, there's a difference between um, the forms of combat or militarism that we'd be familiar with from uh, previous world wars or even from the Gulf Wars, where you've got, like, you have, of course, aerial combat and cluster bombs and all that, but it's mostly hand to hand, intimate, uh, what's called synergetic war. Uh, but now it's like, specifically targeting an individual. That's what drone warfare does. It targets individuals. Um, so it's, it's a manhunt kind of uh, type of militarism. You know, Osama bin Laden would be the most spectacular example of that that we're familiar with. Or um, Saddam Hussein. And of course then, you know, drones are like little, 
little cameras which, which can get, get everywhere. But then, of course, we, we have to watch beheadings and, uh, you know, uh, carpet bombs and all this stuff. Uh, it's almost as if we have this sort of cinematic fascination with, um, with uh, what drones are capable of filming for us. Um, so it's been called disaster porn or atrocity porn, for example, um, that fascination. So this necropolitical logic um, that I'm talking about, uh, it challenges those who are displaced or displaceable or having no place uh, to take up, in inverted commas, their proper place. Um, but once they're in, once they're fixed in place, then sovereign power can arbitrarily and indiscriminately uh, deem them to be disposable. Um, I mean, one of the fascinating things about reading this book is the transcripts of um, the drone operators uh, and their supervisors discussing what they're seeing on the screen. Okay, so they've got this little screen, much like I've got in front of me here, and they're adjudicating on whether someone in Pakistan, you know, all the way over in Pakistan, they're adjudicating, like you know, what they, they can see, maybe the outline of something. Is that a gun? And Someone super supervisor says, yeah, I think that's a gun, and then bang, that person's dead. Uh, and if it turns out that it wasn't a gun, it's legitimised because, like, well, we thought it was, it looked like a gun. Uh, we got the order to go. Uh, so it's, it's really interesting. It's like, oh, is that a kid? Because they won't shoot if they see a kid. And then as soon as it's like, no, there's no kid there, bang. Um, so it's both chilling but fascinating to read these, these transcripts. Um, so not only are these lives, uh, these disposable lives, uncountable, uh, but they're often unaccounted for. And this is one of the uh, disturbing uh, things I've, I've uh, discovered, is that it's, it's, it's impossible, no matter how hard you look, to get precise or even near-precise figures for the casualties of drone warfare. Okay, there is a website you can go to which approximates... Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it's nowhere near uh, the actual figures for the dead, um, which would be both targets, you know, assassinated targets that, that designated kills, I suppose, would be one way of putting it. But also you'd have a lot of civilian or collateral damage. Again, I'm using terms like collateral damage in, in inverted commas because these are people we're talking about. Um, now, Butler points out that Counting means both to matter, in, in the sense that she would mean to matter, but also to be subject to arithmetic. Uh, uh, but legally, these numbers are actually pretty controversial. Uh, if you publish numbers, you're, you, you leave yourself liable to prosecution, for example, um, because under certain conditions, or under these necro-political conditions I'm talking about, um, every member of the population is cast as the enemy. You know, George Bush, like, it's us versus them. So everybody who's them is the enemy. So if everybody falls under the umbrella of enemy, then they also fall under the category of legitimate target. Um, so then, by that logic, there can't be any victims of stray gunfire or stray 
drone fire. So the numbers must be incredibly deflated if we can see any. Um, so there's certain conditions even in which numbers count and certain conditions on, on, under which numbers are uncountable. And Butler says that uh, it's her sense that we cannot calculate the value of life, but that we have to find a way of interpreting numbers that allow us to see who lives and who dies under certain political regimes. But it's impossible for us to uh, find ways of interpreting these numbers because uh, the numbers are not important, which is simply an extension of the fact that these people are not important. Um, so it's very important to follow on from that, uh, to think very carefully about the different ways in which life and death are conceptualised uh, within warfare uh, or within contemporary warfare. Or Talal Assad calls it, calls it death dealing, uh, which is an interesting term because it, it brings up the whole idea of calculation and um, unpredictability as well. Um, I mean, drones are incredibly unpredictable because they, they, they are able to collect all this data, but sometimes the drones get it wrong, you know, but it's always attributed to a human error. Uh, the figures I've seen say that 50% of um, drone kills which were unintentional or classed as collateral damage were human error. Uh, but there's also clearly machine error as well. Um, so <clears throat> I think it's important that we think very closely and very carefully about what losses of life are justified or not justified um, according to... Uh, actually, maybe I need to step back and say this very slowly <laughs> and very carefully. We, we have to think about... Because no, no taking of a life is justified. Um, so what laws of life are justified according to certain political, or religious or cultural traditions? Um, but also what laws of life are legitimated uh, by certain nations and certain nation states? Um, and one thing which you would have to factor in when you're thinking about this idea of justification or legitimation uh, or non-justification or non-legitimation for loss of life is the fact that most countries will send their own people to war. So there's a whole logic of sacrifice or martyrdom, which is a central part of the military ethos. Um, and this is either unwilled, one can be conscripted, or, or chosen. Uh, a lot of people choose to go to war, but of course... There's always the question of when you choose to go to war to, to kill others, that you lay yourself open or vulnerable to the fact that you yourself may be killed. Uh, so there's a whole calculus at work there as well. Uh, but drones are interesting because they complicate the whole idea of sacrifice because the drone operator is not sacrificing him or herself uh, because they're not in an actual combat situation. Um, it's, 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 again, asymmetrical. Uh, they are sitting somewhere in Nevada and the person they're killing is in Yemen. Yeah. So uh, that whole logic of sacrifice, you know, if, if we have to think carefully about it in, in terms of intimate war, 
we have to do a whole a whole different ask ourselves a whole different set of questions uh, in and around drone warfare okay no this necropolitical present or indeed uh, this necropolitical future um, because this is indefiniteness, as I say, uh, is one in which um, techniques of power uh, are just as unevenly distributed. Um, for example, the US is much more powerful than uh, Pakistan, where a lot of this strong striking happens. Uh, so there's an, an undre uneven distribution of power um, just as there are worldwide or global un unevenly distribute, distributed resources, um, so then vulnerability is unevenly distributed. Uh, and then on, uh, if vulnerability is unevenly distributed, then you have to actually go down to another level on this calculus and say that, well, it's unevenly distributed across certain bodies, such as gendered bodies, racialized bodies, uh, sexualized bodies. Um, so that's quite complex, I think. And um, under, under the operations of this necropolitical or neoliberal uh, governance, uh, under these regimes of sovereign power, I think it's important to ask, and it's more than important, it's actually imperative to ask what queer studies has to say about all of this. Um, and the answer is actually very, very little. Um, and I'll take you back to 2005, just 10 years ago. Um, Jose Munoz, um, Jack Halberstam, and David Eng edited a special issue of an American journal called Social Text. And it was called What's Queer About Queer Studies Now? Okay. So it's quite interesting in terms of this course, which is like the nows and thens of queer theory. Okay, so uh, there now is our then. Uh, well, I think we can ask important questions about what they were diagnosing then and what I'm trying to diagnose now. And they said that <coughs> queer theory, they, they tried to cajole queer theory to ask certain questions or to make certain demands or to press harder when it came to thinking through certain things, um, global emergencies, um, and even just asking for a different order of things. You know, that it wasn't simply about, oh, queer studies just about sexuality, right? Uh, they were saying like, well, that's just like a tiny little bit of what queer studies ought to be doing. And they made a long list, and I'll just tell you what it was. They said, here's what we should be looking at. The triumph of neoliberalism, still with us. The collapse of the welfare state. The Bush administration's infinite war on terrorism. Substitute the Obama administration's infinite war on terrorism. The acute militarization of state violence, still with us. The escalation of US empire building, still with us. The clash of <coughs> religious fundamentalisms nationalisms and patriotisms very much with us in the last few weeks. The devolution of civil society and the erosion of civil rights. The pathologization of immigrant communities as terrorist 
and racialised populations as criminal. The shifting forms of citizenship and migration in a putatively post-identity and post-racial age. The politics of intimacy and the liberal recoding of freedom as secularisation, domesticity and marriage. Okay, yeah, there's loads of talk about that, domesticity and marriage. Yeah, how exciting. And the return to moral values and family values as a prophylactic against political debate, economic redistribution and cultural dissent. Okay, so out of that list, Queer Studies has had one or two things to say about all of that, apart from marriage and domesticity. Okay, so 2012, which is three years ago now, Judith Butler and Athena Atianasu wrote a book called Dispossession together, and in that book they're talking about these sim similar types of emergency, the war on terror, economic disparity, economic exhaustion, uh, this normalisation of what's now been called precarity in Butler's work, uh, you know, poverty and so on, um, in terms of the way that capitalism crisis manages. Okay, it's austerity politics, I guess we'd call it now. Um, I don't think even austerity was a term in 2012, though. Um, but also the policing of migration was a big issue uh, in that book, um, which of course is about uh, racialised bodies who are seen to be criminal. Um, and then there's, of course, the ongoing regimes of colonial occupation. So, arguably, nothing much has changed in, in that decade. Um, although drone, drone warfare is one thing that wasn't really on the radar, as it were. Uh, either in 2005 or in 2012. Uh, so I think <clears throat> in these queer times, uh, with all these pressing um, problems or problematics, we, we require a reshaping of what queer theory is and what queer theory can do. Uh, we need a, a much more expansive modality of thinking and analysis um, which I was talking about the other day in terms of uh, Foucault and Deleuze. Uh, it's about developing more creative and experimental um, ways of thinking um, as, it, as it pertains to dissecting uh, these kinds of uh, national, uh, global um, formations uh, which are detrimental to, um, in, a, in a wide-scale way, they're detrimental to um, the survivability and livability of huge uh, numbers of people on our, our globe. But also, uh, even though I'm not going to talk about it, I think critical climate change or global warming, whatever you want to call it, is another thing that Queer Studies has absolutely nothing to say about, actually. Uh, and it's critical, uh, it's crucial that we talk about uh, queer studies as having some sort of uh, planetary dimension. It's all very well to talk about globalisation, uh, but what about, um, you know, what about the life which inhabits our seas, our oceans? Um, you know, what about all the animal life? Um, 
that is slaughtered every day. Uh, you know, I think when we talk about the non-human, it's all it's all very well to to do so in a sort of using sort of platitudes, uh, but this is urgent. And queer studies is just sitting back talking about you know things like marriage and you know uh, when it talks about stuff like militarism, it's like you know oh yeah yeah maybe we should have gays in the military, which by just buys into the logic of like sacrificing subjects to kill other subjects. Um, so this is important. Now there is one theorist <coughs> who is addressing these kinds of issues, uh, Jasbir Puar, um, P-U-A-R. Uh, she wrote a book called Terrorist Assemblages, um, which is doing two things which I think are crucial. On the one hand, she's talking about terrorist formations uh, and the the rendering as terrorist or dangerous of certain racialized populations. Uh, but she's also talking about what she calls homo-nationalism, uh, which is <clears throat> it's a useful term, not only because it talks about the homogenization of certain populations, but it talks about uh, how certain populations are, are deemed to be outside um, or just the same, so lumped into a certain category of the other the them, the enemy, um, an identifiable kind of enemy. Um, so you've got sort of a, the, she's coming out of a US perspective, she's talking about particularly about a sort of United States exceptionalism. Um, but she's also targeting something which uh, has come up a little bit in the questions this week, which is uh, homonormativity, which is this uh, assimilationist a desire for assimilationism, a desire to be normal, um, which can go across gender, sexualities, and, and bodies. Uh, but <clears throat> primarily in this book, what, what Puar tries to do is to re-articulate uh, the figure of the terrorist body uh, and the suicide bomber uh, in particular. And she sees the suicide bomber as uh, an assemblage I remember from the, uh, the lecture on Deleuze. Uh, it's an assemblage um, of human uh, flesh and machine uh, bomb, uh, which uh, would resist a kind of queerness as a sexual identity. Um, the suicide bomber body uh, would be queer, but it wouldn't be in the sense of an identity. Okay, Even though uh, there is a certain... Obviously, there's a racialization of suicide bombers, uh, but there's also a sexualization of them. Um, you might remember um, during the Gulf War, they used to write on, uh, the Americans used to write on their bombs, uh, homophobic kind of slogans. You'd remember that, generally. <laughs> there's people here old enough to remember the Gulf War. Um, but there was this whole logic of, you know, Saddam Hussein was called Saddam. So there's, there's always this sort of idea that the terrorist has something of a perverse sexuality about him. Uh, so it's not just a racialising of the terrorist, there's always a sexualising uh, of him or her as perverse, uh, either in gendered terms or sexualised terms. Uh, so when Pouar <coughs> tries to rethink the terrorist body uh, or the suicide bomber, she's seeing it as an anti-identity. And this is why it's useful for queer um, and this idea of um, 
queerness, I think, resonates with what Butler is saying about relationality. When Butler says we're not an, we're not an entity and we're not an identity, she's in a way saying we're a, we're a sort of convergence uh, of, of, or an implosion. Or, um, not an implosion, that's probably not a good word. We're a convergence or an arrangement. Uh, yeah, Deleuze would like the word arrangement. We're an arrangement of um, bodies, objects, uh, and so on, um, within a specific set of uh, spatial or temporal coordinates, um, which wouldn't be fixed, which would always be mobile. Uh, so it wouldn't be like, like this kind of privileging of masculine, feminine, uh, homo, hetero, you know, queer, not queer, whatever, all these sort of binaries, but you have to do all this largely needless excavation work. Uh, and, and then you just over, people just overturn them, and then that wasn't really the point. Uh, so when you've got something, when you see queerness as something which is an assemblage, are always becoming, or fluid, or unfixed, or unstable, then you're deprivileging the whole notion of binarity. And the reason I'm spending time saying this is because so many questions have come up this week, it's like, which are just like back to binaries. And you know, binaries just aren't interesting. What's interesting is the slashing between them and trying to inhabit that in some way, or, or making it into a space of at least livable habitation. Um, And to, to occupy this sort of hyphenated subjectivity uh, is the only way of retaining some sort of queer, queerness that would be resistant or dissensual or alternative. Um, and these, of course, are all, all of the things that queer does as an operation. These are all the things that it would underscore. But it doesn't underscore contingency because queer just gets sedimentary or solidified back into an identity, I am queer, um, for example, as if it were in the first person. Um, and this is what Butler means by saying, like, uh, you know, there's no I that precedes action. Uh, there's only a we. There's only relationality. There's only contingency. Uh, otherwise, you're just complicit, as far as I can see, with dominant, hegemonic, socio-sexual, uh, uh, racial, and so on, uh, formations, class. So sexuality is crucial to this production of necropolitics, geopolitics, um, particularly to this idea that Poir has of American exceptionalism. Uh, and it's because, precisely because it's exceptional, or considered an exceptionalism, that it's been so vastly under-theorized. You know? And that's interesting. It's like, it's, uh, the drone, again, is kind of interesting, like, you know, because the drone can get in anywhere, sometimes unseen. It's like, oh, we don't really talk about this sort of American exceptionalism because uh, we underrate it in a certain, um, in a certain way. So it's, it's been often left out of the debate um, or just avoided in, in the ways we talk about war on terror. So what Pouar is trying to, to talk about is the sort of terrorist corporeality, which would be that the queer is terrorist and the terrorist is queer. Um, and that's an interesting question. Um, and I think it, it, it helps us think about the ways in which drones have... 
in a sense, reconfigured uh, the, the very broad concept of spatiality and, and uh, territory. Uh, so if, you see, if you see the terrorist as someone who is kind of like a virus or contaminatory, and I'm, I'm not saying that in a pejorative way, I'm, I'm, I'm using it as a, in terms of a virus that can spread... Um, can spread its tentacles out. Uh, if you see terrorism as like that, and uh, in a way that it can escape control, um, escape um, exceptionalism or sovereign power, uh, that seems to me quite interesting in terms of queer um, queer becomings. Um, if you like, but also it, <clears throat> it's something which can be recaptured um, in the sense that when you talk about drones, you have this change from war, which is synergetic, which is where you have armed violence, where you seek your prey, wherever in that country um, you're fighting wherever they may be in that country you're fighting. Okay, so there's a definite locatable space, zone or territory in which that war is fought. Uh, so there's a notion of armed conflict which exists inside a bordered space, inside a sovereign territory. Um, but now, with drone warfare, there's no particular space in which uh, combat can happen. Um, and it's interesting because Puer is talking about the, the corporeality of the terrorist. We're really right down now to the body of the terrorist. Okay, because we've zoned in on the body. It's no longer about, oh, let's blow up this building. It's a particular person of interest, a particular target. Um, so that idea of space that we had before just doesn't hold in terms of that because the body of the enemy is the space. Okay, so that's... In one sense, that's queer, because it's, it's got that idea of sort of micro-mobility or micro-political mobility. That's if the, that's if the terrorist can escape. Um, but this micro-mobile space of, of the target, um, wherever it happens to be, the problem with that is that there's suddenly this sort of limitless virtual extension of conflict zones into the world, the whole world. So the globe actually becomes the battlefield. Um, and that opens up the question of sovereignty in a particular way insofar as um, the zones in which drone strikes take place are not actually zones of territorial conflict because there's actually there's no armed conflict in any of the countries um, where you know drone campaigns have been taking place but international law it's a contravention of international law because international law says you can only kill someone you only have the right to kill someone with weapons which I assume means all weapons um, from handheld to aerial weapons. But uh, you have no right to kill them outside of an armed conflict zone. You can kill them inside of a conflict zone. Uh, so the funny thing about the, 
the global war on terror is that it's completely outside of our extra legal or it's extra uh, judicial. So it's when we're talking about rogues in our uh, veer, rogues veer, uh, these are rogue um, strategies, they're rogue strategies for targeting. Um, and it's interesting, when we're talking about space, they call it the kill box. Okay, so they just have a little box on their screen and they call it the kill box. So if you want to talk about scale, um, you know, that's, that's really interesting because it's, it's just become a little tiny box uh, as opposed to a whole nation. Um, however, when there is a drone strike in a, what I would call an illegitimate zone of conflict, the, the US very often claims, and Obama has said this, justice has been done. Okay, and that whole notion that justice has been done runs aground on, on uh, the very premise that I've just been saying. But you can't kill an unarmed target uh, in a space that is outside a conflict zone. Uh, it's a complete, you know, it makes a complete mockery of international criminal justice. Um, however, the American argument, or the argument of those who use drones, is that they're more ethical. Okay, why are they ethical? Because this is the the moral philosophy line on it. That they're they're ethical because they prevent loss of lives. Um, well, they prevent loss of lives of the of air crew who might be. Um, so this is in a sense uh, justifies morally justifies in inverted commas this supposed right, uh, and it's a supposed right because it's anticipatory of self-defense. Oh, well, they're the enemy. They were going to kill... Uh, I'm not sure how someone in a uh, Pakistani farmhouse can kill someone in um, Nevada sitting in front of a screen, but this is the argument that it's anticipatory self-defense. Um, so nobody dies, right? As I said, nobody dies except the enemy. Okay, so... And as far as the Americans are concerned, I'm sorry for all the anti-Americanism here, uh, but I'm sure all all the people from America who are listening in are, you know, sympathetic to my to my position. Um, so nobody dies except this purported enemy. Now there's a, a theorist called Achille Mbembe, uh, M-B-E-M-B-E, um, and he, it was he who coined this term necropolitics. Um, and he's interesting because he also talks about the suicide bomber. Um, but I think this idea of necropolitics is useful because, for drones anyway, because it gets at the idea of a death machine. Okay, so it's useful for having this idea of the machinal quality um, to the way that contemporary political terrain uh, works along. It's it's not just anatomical domination, it's a sort of heightened sensorial domination that's going on. Um, and drones, as I said, the noise is terrible, uh, but also that you see them all the time. So you see them circling or you hear them. So it's, a, it's an assault on the senses. Um, Butler has been arguing for what she calls sensate democracy, which would be a way of... Uh, using or mobilizing all of the senses uh, 
including sound and image, uh, in a way that we could lay claim to uh, what could be called a livable life um, in terms of a censored democracy. Uh, so um, the capacity to be seen, the capacity to be heard, uh, the capacity to be known, um, which is denied to subjugated um, individuals or populations. Um, and when I talk about that, <clears throat> when I talk about that as uh, not an entity or not an identity, I mean that an identity cannot, um, an identity cannot grasp that which does not fit an already existing category. So it can't, it can't grasp futurity. It can't grasp the unanticipatable, that which, that which may, uh, that which cannot be known or cannot be seen or cannot be heard or is yet to be known, seen or heard. Um, so this is why I would emphasize um, queer as a becoming in terms of futurity, rather, or queer as anti-identity, anti-identitarian. Um, so it's, <clears throat> it's, again, it's part of this shift uh, from biopower to necropolitics. If we see queerness and the terrorist has been somehow interconnected. Uh, this is because of the power of uh, sovereignty or uh, the sort of Western political, uh, theological political uh, rationality that frames certain lives as being those that count as lives and those as being ready for or to be put to death. Um, so that's, that's how the figure of the, the Palestinian <clears throat> suicide bomber becomes important for Mbembe. And he, he, he doesn't necessarily make a queer argument about this, uh, but there's something queer in the way that he gets at the idea of this, the suicide bomber. Uh, and it comes back to something that uh, Emer said the other day about parody and pastiche, um, because things that uh, it becomes the the suicide bomber becomes a kind of patchwork of uh, body, uh, metal, flesh, uh, the organic, the inorganic. Um, so it's not quite self and not quite other. It's it's not quite a death of the self, not quite a death of the other, but it's both. So, so it's a symbol, it's a self-annihilation, but it's also a form of resistance and self-preservation. Um, so there's something odd and monstrous, and I use monstrous always in a positive sense, because the monster is that which monstrare to demonstrate, to show. The monstrous is that which we cannot anticipate. The monstrous is the very figure for the f futurity that identity would want to close off. So when I use the term monstrous, I mean it wholly affirmatively. Now, the body of the suicide bomber, um, it forces us to think about all these opposites, organic, inorganic, body, technology, um, in ways which, as Butler would argue, uh, collapses them. Um, so things that we think of as contradictory uh, end up perversely inhabiting each other. Uh, so the... Life and death <clears throat> are always sort of inextricably 
inhabiting each other anyway. But uh, this figure in the midst of always already dying that the suicide bomber is, uh, is in the midst of a becoming. Uh, and Mbembe calls this the ballistic body. Uh, this ballistic body um, it's uh, in the midst of this sort of becoming uh, it, it blurs these, these kind of categories we like to keep distinct like inside and outside um, and it, it, if you go back to what I was saying about like contamination and this virus like quality it, it's, it's like an infection you know it has this in, in infective transformational quality um, but it's also in, in temporal terms, it's like it's like the future breaking in to the present in some sense. Uh, Gayatri Spivak, uh, in a very famous essay called Can the Subaltern Speak, uh, she also appeals to this figure, uh, this multivalent figure of the suicide bomber. Um, this is what Spivak says. She says, suicidal resistance... Suicidal resistance is a message inscribed on the body when no other means will get through. It is both execution and mourning for both self and other, for you die with me for the same cause, no matter which side you are on. Because no matter who you are, there are no designated killies in suicide bombing. No matter what side you are on, because I cannot talk to you, you won't respond to me, with the implication that there is no dishonour in such shared and innocent deaths. So, again, as with Mbembe, Spivak's arguing for this kind of collapse, um, this collapse of sides or collapse of opposites in uh, both the temporal and spatial interruptions of the suicide bomber. Uh, so, as a queer assemblage, which would be distinct from the queering of identity uh, as, a, as an entity, um, it becomes something impermanent uh, and transient. Sort of, we talked about the immemorial current in Cedric S. There's a sort of impermanence and transience about the suicide bomber. Now, I think there's also an interarticulation or connection between the drone and the suicide bomber. And in 2006, there's a, there's a report from the US military that there was a new technique being used by the insurgents in Iraq and this is what it was. Suicide bombers were being equipped with a camera that transmitted images directly to their superiors. And thanks to this equipment, um, thanks to this equipment, or because of this equipment, a second member of the terrorist cell would be able to um, observe uh, the activities of suicide bombers so, uh, who would have a miniature camera installed so the second member would then ensure that the suicide bomber hit his or her target uh, uh, and would actually conduct the detonation. And if something go, went wrong, the second person would be able to detonate the, the device remotely. Okay? So what you've got is a human drone. Now it's a, it's a drone where uh, metal, and metal and flesh come together in the person um, and Shamayu says in drone theory, a human drone is thus invented, remotely controlled by others who can be blown up at any moment thanks to a long-distance detonating device. Of course, the irony is that if the suicide bomber has become drone, has a camera, then those on the other side, the enemy side, 
depending on which side you're on, uh, would have their own soldiers watching, whether remotely or on the ground, and they see some individual making suspicious, a suspicious approach or a suspicious gesture. Um, so we've moved on to a very different type of warfare there, um, and it's, it's no longer a, a partisan who is droneized. Uh, they're actually, quite simply, drones. There's a gender dimension to all of this as well, I think, um, which if I have time I'll, I'll, I'll go into a little bit. <coughs> so there's this, as I said, this dispersion of, of boundaries uh, or denaturalisation of boundaries um, and of bodies. Uh, so it's a challenge to the normative ways or binary ways that we understand gender, the ways we understand sexuality and the ways we understand race. But it's also uh, suicide bombing in this resistance Spivak's talking about uh, would be uh, to disobey uh, the normative conventions of uh, appropriate um, bodily practices. Uh, but it's also to disobey the idea of the, the, the body as bounded, as the, so the sanctity of the body. Um, so, in a sense, <clears throat> you're reading them in ways which don't necessarily read them in terms of... Uh, nationalistic, religious, fundamentalist, patriarchal, uh, ethnic, uh, any of those kinds of categories, because these, these bodies are, you know, they're, they're simply non-entities. And again, I'm not using that as a negative. They're non-entities, they're non-identities. They're, they're corporealities which are non, they're non-exceptional in, in the way that I'm talking about exceptionalism. Uh, they're also non-heteronormative um, because if, <clears throat> if they're not about nation or citizenship or gender or sexuality, uh, then they're not privileging any sorts of normativities. Uh, so that, I think, uh, should help us think about the ways in which we can expand queer theory or queerness as a field or as a terrain um, or as a vector, you know, um, and uh, in ways which I think bear on uh, this shift <clears throat> that Butler is making from performativity in the early work to precarity in the later work. So it's a condition of vulnerability which is much broader, okay, um, and it's about dependency and interdependency, and it would change the ways in which we think ontologically. Um, about the embodied subject. So the, it's less about epistemology as it is about ontology. Because these, these subjects are non-beings, non as I said earlier. And no, no less than the drone, this idea of queer corporeality would uh, cause intense anxiety because it causes trouble, it provokes trouble for certain perimeters or certain boundaries inside, outside, um, and that causes fear uh, for us because we're so attached to the onto-epistemological identity-based categories that are so hard to dislodge. Um, and, and 25 years of queer theory hasn't managed to dislodge 
um, this idea of the body as a discrete, singular, um, self-sufficient, um, bounded. So this is why Butler is moving towards this idea of the performative as relational, uh, this idea that we're dependent on, as she says, infrastructural and historical legacies. Um, so there are these sort of discursive and institutional legacies that we have which precede us and they manage us and they govern us and that, of course, are part of our existence. But this very fact that we're subject to all these institutional powers and discourses uh, is, well, it's, it's, our, it's our vulnerability, but it's also what allows us to resist. Uh, it's also what allows us to mobilise um, or to embody some sort of enactment of resistance. Um, so it's to embrace our vulnerability, okay, because drones are an example of what is considered to be invulnerability. They're a very good sort of visual image of invulnerability or inviolability, and so is the person operating them, because they're in no danger. They're inviolable, at least physically. So there's this whole question of the power of the oppressor and the power of the oppressed. Uh, and the justification for drone warfare is always, you know, this paradoxical thing, which is like, oh, but we're under attack from these people. Uh, so there's ways in which vulnerability gets mobilised, which is awkward. You know, it veers in an awkward way, because I'd be opposed to the idea that these, these populations are going to attack us. Uh, as an explanation for it. So that even the term vulnerability itself is, is, is mobile and shifting. And we don't necessarily always like or want the terms of deviations, the kinds of deviations and iterations it may take on. Uh, so it, this is partly to answer the questions about veering yesterday. Is it always positive? No, because the meaning of a term can always take on unwilled or unwanted, unanticipated certainly and unexpected, but we may not always want them. The meaning of drone is negative right now, right? It could take on deviate and swerve and take on other uses, and it has taken on other uses potentially if, uh, as a humanitarian aid, as a delivery device, as a toy. Um, or as a film camera, the first drone porn movie has, has been made. Uh, so there are other uses for the drone. So there's always this kind of scrambling of codes. And this is how drones work, they read codes. Yeah? So there's always this kind of scrambling of uh, the organic, the inorganic, the flesh, the machine, uh, which alters the terrain of the political. Um, but it also alters the terrain of our, our theoretical projects. About 10 years ago, I wrote an essay called The Roguish Future of Queer Studies. And I said the queer studies needs to adopt an autoimmunitary self-criticizing, which is to destroy itself in order to open out to its future. So I was arguing for a suicide bombing of itself, um, which hasn't happened yet, but I'm still doing that kind of work. Um, but this would be similar... <clears throat> I think my idea of autoimmunity to this idea in Puar of the terrorist assemblage, um, because you've got a scrambling of codes or uh, informational flows, uh, energetic intensities, 
bodies and practices, vibrations and reverberations. Um, but also you've got this idea of the agentic swerve that Butler is talking about, which is how bodies uh, swerve out of place. So drones, uh, as I said, are traditionally placed in a position of uh, being opposed to vulnerability. So if we oppose vulnerability on this ground of the agentic by seeing ourselves as agent, um, we'd prefer to see ourselves as acting rather than being acted upon. Uh, so we'd, we'd prefer to see ourselves in the position of the drone operator as someone who is an actor. Uh, but really, uh, already norms precede us. Um, so drones would be quite opposed to the idea of vulnerability, receptivity, susceptibility, and therefore ethical responsiveness. Um, so drone operators, or the droneism, um, it closes off a whole ethical field, because it closes off uh, all sorts of ethical terms, like you know, to confer dignity on someone or something, uh, to see oneself as susceptible, um, are open to the other, to see others and oneself as injurable in some way. Uh, or just the word openness uh, is closed off, and therefore the future is closed off. So the drone operator is always in this position uh, of the sovereign, of knowledge, of a posture of control, um, of acting, of self-propriety, of inviolability, of boundedness, sturdiness. Uh, this this self-centred I, or this uh, self-centred self. And this is a masculinist ideal that Butler was arguing feminist theory really needs to be talking about modes of, modes of the agentic, which are premised on vulnerability, but challenge this masculinist ideal of the bounded subject. Because if you see the subject as bounded, then you cover over vulnerability in so many ways that I've just mentioned that simply cannot be overcome. Um, and it's, it's dangerous because it masks the way in which performativity doesn't free us in any way. Okay, we're not free because, you know, we act and are acted upon. Okay, so there's this dual dimension of performativity. Uh, so... In spite of ourselves, we're vulnerable to discourses which we don't choose. We're, 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 we, we inhabit the world, as I said, in this sort of connectedness to others. But we, it's unwilled and unchosen. So ethical responsiveness is when we... It's sort of the next step on from, you know, the fact that we're born into, if you like, this normative situation. And, of course, your sovereign mode is to be defensive, you know, there's a great line in Undoing Gender where Butler says, we're undone in the face of the other, and if we're not, we're missing something. And I think that's really interesting in terms of drone warfare, because face-to-face -face combat, you know, you read this in a lot of accounts of warfare, where it's like, oh, you know, I felt guilty after because I was looking the person in the eyes, or whatever. You read accounts of guilt and, and trauma, which are caused by face-to-face. -face. But in the drone warfare... It's complicated because on the one hand, the technology is so good that, you know, they're almost face to face. You know, there's a sort of 
the clarity of the, the optical devices they have means that you're almost in the room with them. You know, they see the day-to-day -day routines of all these people. There's this sort of almost pornographic voyeurism uh, about drone warfare. You know, they see, they see them <coughs> having breakfast. They may even see them having sex. You know, they go to their funerals, I read in one account. Um, so this surveillance is... You know, it's... Surely it's... The technology is so sharp that it, it's something near to face-to-face -face intimacy. Uh, but it's not reciprocal because they, it's self and other. It's not reciprocal. Uh, you know when it is reciprocal? When they're talking to their own troops on the ground. And if they see one of their own troops in danger, it's like it's one of ours. So suddenly you have this intimacy there, which is reciprocal. Uh, and the administration of violence changes, uh, whereas the, the enemy must always inhabit this position of the other. So there's always this her sort of hermeneutics of suspicion, which doesn't, of course, accrue to your own men. Um, but of course, <clears throat> even though they closely identify with their own, uh, there are times when that can misfire, when that can veer, because if you misinterpret a signal, or the drone itself misinterprets a signal, then that person can die and you're watching that. So the, re the response to that is like, clearly, that person is not other. Um, so there can be disastrous misfires. Um, but of course, that's always attributed to human error rather than drone malfunction. But Butler says, this is before drone warfare, she says that in this whole technocultural system, the machines and technological instruments surely also use persons, position them, endow them with perspectives, establish the trajectory of their actions. So the machines, the drones in this case, frame and form anyone who enters into the visual or audible field, and accordingly those who do not. So drones, in a sense, are us, in a way, or at least they, they're extensions of us. Yeah, that's a good Good word, Geraldine. Yeah, they're, they're extensive words. They, they, they symbolise our, our interaction with each other in, in our increasingly technologised world uh, because we trust ourselves in almost everything we do now uh, to automation of some sort. Uh, so drones, drones are, in a sense, a symbol of our reliance. Think of our phones. Uh, we're reliant upon streams of data the way drones are. We're also... Uh, dependent on technology or avail ourselves of technology in order to navigate our everyday world. Um, so if you think of a car, right, as just a single person driving um, along a road in a straight line, okay, think of drones as a veering which is mobile. It's a swarm of people or multiple, um, multiple parts of a network um, all sharing data. Now, that could be positive. That could be to make better decisions. Uh, so there's one way in which that's a, that could be a positive outcome of us becoming drones, is that we avail ourselves of the abilities uh, that our interrelation with technology allows for, uh, and we, in a sense, become intimate um, or coextensive with our robotic friends. Um, so we grow, we grow to like them, 
just as much as we grow like them. Now, where am I? But because the drone comes from a sort of historical narrative uh, or discourse where it's seen as uh, always military, I mean, they're designed by the military, their function is not that sort of pastoral vision I've just described. Uh, they're, they're perverse projectiles. Uh, so they're always complicit with surveillance, uh, policing, panopticism. Um, so they, their job is to produce us as docile subjects and the drone operators as patriotic subjects or citizens. Um, on the other hand, we could read them as somehow... Like the suicide bomber, there would be a kind of a perverse projectile. You know, they can always go awry. They can always stray off course. Um, so when they fuse with the suicide body or, or the, the body of the suicide bomber, they become a war machine in Deleuze's sense. That uh, they become a body weapon or an assemblage that machines together life and death. Um, now that's of course, sounds terribly romantic, and um, but I think it's necessary because self-sacrificial death, as Spivak says, is is an agency. Um, and if you inhabit this this position of always already dying, and you can rescript that as a way of freeing oneself from the materiality of the body and all that attends to it or with it, then. Uh, that seems to me an embrace of death which um, is actually a release from the brutalities of the necropolitical okay. I always think of Deleuze's suicide when he jumped out the window and people say like oh he committed suicide so, well, there's a Spinozan reading of that like that he jumped to his death in order to join a, a line of flight as an escape from the present uh, so it was actually an embrace of futurity uh, in order to exit the brutality of the present. So suicide bombers are not united by what they represent. Okay, this is the point. They don't represent an identity, a nation, an identity, a religion, or a gender. At least that theoretically. And Spivak says the female suicide bomber, for example, doesn't make a gendered point. There's no recoding of the gendered struggle. Um, so they're marked by what they do. So it's doing and becoming rather than being. Um, However, I think the drones do complicate that because there's this idea that the military ethos has changed because um, you're unmanned or emasculated. Shamayu says this, you're emasculated because of all those masculinist conceptions we were talking about of bodily action and bodily agency. And Butler actually emphasises this idea of assemblage as well. Um, she says that if we accept that part of what a body is, and this is for the moment an ontological claim, is this dependency on other bodies and networks of support, then we are suggesting that it is not altogether right to conceive of individual bodies as completely distinct from one another. So she's theorising the human as a, as a certain dependency on the infrastructure that we described of yesterday as the environment, um, those relations of support and networks that the human uh, isn't decided, divided or dissociated from the technical world or from the animal world. And of course the drone operator is, is, a, is an assemblage of human and um, technical. These, they're called like telecommuters. 
because they go in their, their SUVs or their like you know an assemblage of human and car to these remote kill uh, uh, centres and then they're attached to a joystick or a computer screen all day. Now I said that the, the drone operator in a sense is invulnerable because they can't be killed but they do suffer perhaps from a psychic vulnerability. Uh, now they'll be highly resistant to this idea of vulnerability given the grounds of mastery. You know. But um, there has been research done to, to interrogate whether the drone operators feel guilt, stress or trauma, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, which, you know, studies have been done in all the previous wars and conflicts. Um, and the reality is the research shows that the stress that they do feel, this vulnerability they talk about, psychic vulnerability, is because they're away from their families uh, or the monotony of the job because you're just looking at a screen for hours and hours and perhaps nothing's happening. Uh, they never talk about killing, or very few talk about killing, as, uh, although there has been a new designation, I had to write this down, PITS, perpetration-induced stress disorder. So perpetration-induced stress disorder, which could be, it's a new psychopathology in the time of drone warfare. Uh, so when you get a new technique of violence, you will, have, you will automatically have new, new kinds of trauma and uh, you have to have new sort of psychoethical modes for dealing with that or problematizing people's experiences of war and killing. So Shamayu jokes, or I'm not sure if he's joking, he says like, you know, eventually you'll have, you know, programs of treatment for assassins, you know, for the traumas that they suffer. Well, of course, we already do, I guess, in, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder for veterans. Now, Gassan Hage uh, wonders why suicide bombing can't be considered, and I'm just preempting the arguments against what I'm saying, uh, why it can't be considered uh, without being condemned first. Uh, he says that suicide bombers are actually a sign of life emanating from, from the violent conditions of life's impossibilities, what I talked about, the, br the brutal realities of the necropolitical. So he's, he's saying that uh, suicide bombing is actually the impossibility of making a life turned into a life. And Butler says something similar, I think, about the human shield. And she says the human shield, this is recent, she says the human shield is the practice of deliberate exposure to police or military violence in which bodies actively put themselves on the line and either receive blows or seek to halt violence as living blockades or barriers. So the human shield is an assemblage of human and blockade. Um, now as with the su suicide bomber, I think these are signs of life where shared vulnerability is actually marshaled or mobilised actively against police violence or military violence. Um, now they could be viewed as destructive kinds of mobilisation like the kamikaze bomber or the suicide bomber um, because they're destructive to both self and to life itself. Uh, but what's interesting <clears throat> for Spivak Butler uh, and Gassan Hage uh, is that these mobilisations or assertions of vulnerability uh, which may be self-annihilative are actually ways in which we assert our existence you know, in the face of being nobody or not counting you assert the fact that you can claim right to space 
public space. You can claim a right to equality. You can oppose the police. Uh, you can oppose security and military actions and other violent regimes. So these are moments of social and political uh, resistance. Now, they may be isolated and rare and momentary. Um, however, we have to bear in mind that that public space that these bodies are laying claim to is threatened all of the time. Okay? The people in Pakistan, Somalia, Yemen, um, Afghanistan, wherever these drones uh, strikes are being carried out daily, they are always exposed to sovereign and exceptionist power. So resistance may be rare, but the other condition is indefinite. So it's a corporeal exposure um, which has to be mobilised into a concerted and deliberate act of resistance. And Butler actually does talk about the suicide bomber uh, in terms of this entanglement between taking one's own life and the life of another. And she says it's just a graphic instance of a particular logic in which armies send their own soldiers into combat with others where they're supposed to kill, but then they end up getting killed themselves. So she says like, the suicide bomber is just like a, a spectacular uh, imagization of what militarism just depends on repeatedly uh, in its sacrifices. But it also, in the way that it valorizes you know, certain lives, our lives, um, and this has important uh, consequences for Butler's critique of the, the masculinist ethos of the warrior, um, because there are, no, there are no war heroes anymore. I read that uh, they're creating war medals for drone operators, which people who've actually fought on the ground are going like, you know, but they're such chickens, you know? So there's this whole argument about, like, uh, masculinity and being unmanned and emasculated by being a drone operator. So this, uh, they're unhe unheroic. And Chamayu uses a really interesting phrase. He calls it a, a burlesque, which is this way of uh, uh, looking at the, the, the contradiction between you know, what is achieved you know, uh, in terms of you know, to get these high decorations and the burlesque is that, like, you know, they've some, done something so base uh, in just deploying uh, a kill with the, with the push of a button, uh, and then they get valorised as war heroes. However, I'm, I'm saying that there's this idea, and Butler's saying that there's this idea of a life drive and a death drive, which is assembled into destructive forms of militarism, by which most armies work. But drones complicate this willingness to be killed, in the course of killing, um, because you don't risk your own life. And the, the heroism actually in that situation gets given over to the enemy. So the enemy, the, the, the person who is targeted, the man who is hunted, or woman who is hunted, is uh, the one who is turned into a martyr or heroized. Uh, so there's a moral disadvantage. Like, uh, which is bought at the price of this material advantage. Uh, and specialists of counterinsurgency and counterinsurrection have said, like, drone warfare is crazy because drone warfare is, is so counterproductive. Because if you operate a drone strike in a non combat zone, then you, suddenly you've got 150 Taliban, uh, where there may have only been one 
Taliban in that area because once you strike, they will then mobilise enemy camps against you. So there are, there are totally deleterious effects to this idea of like, oh yeah, let's pulverise these, these people uh, from a distance. Uh, but you won't win any support on the ground. Um, okay, so I'm going to conclude now with just um, a caveat about uh, resistance and complicity. Um, and Pouar says that you know, reclaiming the non-exceptional or the non-heterogeneous is, is only really partially the point for assemblages allow for complicities of privilege and the production of new normativities even as they cannot anticipate spaces and moments of resistance. Resistance that is not primarily characterised by oppositional stances, but includes frictional forces, discomforting encounters, and spurts of unsynchronised delinquency, the jamming of technological and informational structures, such as underground hacker subterfuge, viruses, mobile models of crowds gathering at anti-war protests. These modes of solidarity can be either incipient or enduring. If we think of underground hacking and subterfuge. Um, those who are being attacked by the drones, of course, can hack into um, the drones themselves. The Americans were so confident that the, you know, the Pakistani counter-terrorists couldn't, uh, or terrorists, couldn't hack into their thing that they didn't bother encrypting carefully enough. So they bought, like, uh, the Pakistanis bought like, something on the internet for $26 and hacked into the drones. So it's quite interesting that uh, there are modes of resistance like that. Um, but it, they can be either fleeting or persistent. Uh, and Butler is aware of that, that performativity and the way norms work is that they shape us and then we deviate from them. But then the norms can always, you know, calcify again or uh, we can get swept up again. Uh, so even though there's something queer at the heart of this notion of the agentic, and that we can we can take iterable swerves. Um, there's also the fact that we are being acted upon. So as, as much as it's a condition and possibility for acting, um, we're very susceptible still to norms prior to any volition that we may have. Um, so again, it's it's not just corporeal vulnerability. Uh, there's you know there's psychic vulnerability. There's medical vulnerability. There's legal vulnerability. Uh, we need all of those operations, the medical, uh, the legal, the religious, and so on, in order to be legible, intelligible, or thinkable. Uh, so even if the, even though these are the spaces in which there are conditions for us to act, it's also that where we are affected. So. It's only when the norm is refused or revised that we can have new formula formulations. And there is drone activism, anti-drone activism. And I think it's, it's kind of like a nice queer twist that the main drone activists are called Code Pink. So opening up <clears throat> to this idea of futurity um, can be a positive political or critical strategy if we think about it in terms of assemblages, collective, multiple, uh, different enunciations and solidarities. Uh, but it, it can also be a danger because it's, the future is unknowable. Um, and Derrida says at the beginning of, of grammatology, the future can only be anticipated in the form of an absolute danger. Um, so the future is always unforeseeable, which I think is interesting in terms of drones, which we think of as seeing everything. Uh, but the future is what one cannot see. Um, there's something inadvertent, something veering, something unexpected. 
that happens in this whole realm of being affected and affecting. Uh, so we think of these sort of mechanical norms just being repeated over and over again, but there are ways of breaking those citational chains, like the way the, the poets in uh, the prisoners in Guantanamo used to write poetry uh, with, with pebbles on their styrofoam cups or write with toothpaste. Ways in which one can develop new forms of life which escape these sort of regimes which are sovereign and, um, you know, I'm not saying there are some... Um, I'm nearly finished now. And we're not saying there are that... You know, the butler says, like, you know, there are no right gender performances or wrong gender performances or no, nothing is subversive. I'm not saying, like, oh, suicide bombing or these kinds of insurgencies are necessarily right or wrong or reactionary or subversive. Uh, I'm just saying that there are ways in which we can disrupt the rhythms in which we're always already dying or subjected to damaged futures or to what Lauren Berlant calls slow death. So it's just a different grammar. Uh, of what is an irreversible grammar, which is our death sentence. Um, I'm playing on the idea of sentence there. Um, so under these necropolitical conditions which administrate our bodies, uh, precarity is only ever, or most often, intensified and exploited. So we must resist, but we must resist from positions which are not identitarian, uh, they must be relational. And if they are relational in terms of their connectedness to other bodies, objects and forces, uh, things which impinge on us, then we can enact forms of resistance that would oppose precarity in times when we're radically unsupported, disposable and deprived of the conditions we need. So if we just see it in terms of a minor insurrection, like just a relaxing of the ways in which norms have a hold on us under necropower, uh, then we can engender more liberal lives. I mean, drones, for the moment, they just kill people or they spy on people, but there could be a future, albeit a fantasy, uh, in which drones are designed primarily for us, like the, or primarily by us to aid us and support us. So drones could become that infrastructural support, because if new modes of violence lead to new modes of psychoethical and um, psychopathological treatments and diagnoses, then why can't we imagine uh, new design futures where we have ethical drone technologies? Uh, now, if we were capable of designing drones in the first place in order to do us harm, then we're capable of designing drones which could support us or sustain us or replenish us and make room for livable lives. And I mean, that's ultimately and surely that that's down to us. Okay, it's our responsibility to bring about that future, which would be uh, of a drone which was more like us. Okay, I I'll stop because I've gone on quite long. Thank you.